Hi, this is Matt Schofield. I'm the supervising storyboard director on The Simpsons, and you're listening to Four Finger Discount. Four Finger Discount, dude. Welcome to Four Finger Discount, proudly brought to you by the Simpsons quotes that nobody gets anymore Facebook page and no homeless.net. I am Dando. I am Mitch. How you going, man? Very good, Dando. Very excited today because we have another special guest. Yes. How good was the interview? Well, we haven't done, for the listeners, we haven't done the interview yet. <laughs> I'm just saying. Magic go- of radio, Dando. How We're go- about to do it. How- He's live on the line. No. <laughs> in podcast world, you do the interview first. Everyone knows that. And then you plug it at the start. Well, everyone knows it now. Yeah. <laughs> Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> we interviewed Matt Schofield, the supervising storyboard director of The Simpsons. And he's originally from Brisbane. And he's been working on The Simpsons for about 15 years. And the stories he had, how great were they? Yeah, yeah, really, really good. I mean, look, 15 years on the show, of course, you're going to have... 15 years working anywhere, you're going to have really good stories. 15 years working on one of the most loved shows of all time, then you're going to have really uh, a lot of stories that a lot of people care about, which is even better. Well, he started on the show in the 90s, so it was still, you know, at its prime. Yeah. And he also worked on some movies. Yeah, well, yeah, look, TV shows, whatever... Little bits and pieces here and there. <laughs> what we really care about is that he worked on The Iron Giant, my favourite movie of all time. Certainly favourite animated movie. Definitely one of the best movies of all time. If you haven't seen The Iron Giant and you listen to this podcast, what are you doing with your life? Because I've spoken about it, I reckon, four or five times already. <laughs> Stop this. Pause it. Go watch The Iron Giant. Then come back and listen to the interview. Because I, I went and watched it for the interview. Yeah. And it is a great movie. How good is it? Did you oh. cry at the end? I did. And I, I know you've said... There's no shame in crying at the end I, of this I know movie. That, I know that you said that you didn't like the ending, but I'm glad no, no, they no, did no. it. No, no, It's not that I didn't like it, but I would have I would have also... I could have seen them go the dark route. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just... We'll, we'll leave it to I you I love guys. it. There's nothing about the movie that I don't like. But just... You How will cry you. when you watch it. It's a great movie. Yeah, you will. You will cry. There'll be tears. There'll be laughter. There's joy. <laughs> it's so great. It's so, so, so goddamn great. I've got to watch it this afternoon. You should have seen Mitch's face when he was talking to me about the Iron Giant. He's just grinning the whole time. I was. Yeah. Um, also, I just want to let you guys know, if you haven't rated and reviewed us on the iTunes store yet, can you please do so? Like we said, subscribe to the podcast jump on the iTunes store and give us a review. The more reviews, the more chance of us boosting up the rankings. Yeah. Also, if you've got a question for us, just contact us via the Facebook page. We will respond to every message we get. So, facebook.com slash discount. But for now, let's get into the interview with none other than Matt Schofield. Hey guys, welcome to Four Finger Discount, and today we are joined by a man who has been working for The Simpsons for the last 15 or so years. You can find him on Twitter, at Mr. Underscore Schofield. He is the current supervising storyboard director of The Simpsons. He is Matt Schofield. Matt, thanks for your time, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you guys? Always good. How's your weekend been? Pretty good. Nice yeah. and relaxed. Just so relaxed? Far, so hoping it stays that way. Do the Simpsons crew ever go out and just have a few drinks together on the weekend, or is it just you go your separate ways on a Friday night? Um, well, the Simpsons crew has been together for, you know, as you know, 25 plus years now. Yeah. So a lot of guys on the Simpsons are actually, you know, married with, with families now. So there's not a lot of going out, at least for me, because I'm married, I've got little kids, so yeah. I don't go out drinking anymore. But yeah, I mean, a little bit. When I first started on the show, I was a bit more sort of social with the workmates and stuff. But I think as, as time's gone on, you know, it's a very it's a very family like atmosphere because everybody there has been on the show for multiple years. I think the we just had one storyboard artist start like last month, but he was actually the first new employee that we'd had for uh, 
few years, actually. So, because the, the Simpsons just keeps going. So people just stay on the show because, you know, they like the job and they like working on the show. Yeah. Why go anywhere else, you know? Is that kind of intimidating matter if you cast your mind back to when you'd first started to walk into a group that's so tight-knit and that has been together for such a long time? Um, no, well, in my case, the way that I started on The Simpsons was I had a friend of a friend who was an assistant director on the show. So I already kind of, he got me a test. Like they do, they give you the layout artists a test to see how well you can draw the characters and, and you know, what your skill level is um, in terms of just animation things. And so I got a job as a result of, doing the test and so I already kind of knew him and I knew a couple of other guys through him so I wasn't coming in completely as the new kid on the block but no I mean I wasn't ever intimidated I always felt like everyone was very friendly it was somewhat intimidating in terms of like skill level when I first started my first show that I worked on doing character layout was called Take My Wife's Sleaze. Where yeah, you do Homer the motorbikes, yeah. Starts a, a bikey gang. Yeah. And at the end of that episode, the head of the biker, there's a rival biker gang, and the voice was John Goodman, and he and Homer have this basically like a, a sword fight, yeah. but using their motorcycles. And I actually had to animate that as my first kind of... That's pretty of, cool you know, dropped into the deep end experience on The Simpsons. So that was sort of intimidating. But, you know, you're always being asked to draw something different. So it really pushes you in terms of your skill level. Because before I started on The Simpsons, I'd never drawn horses. I'd never drawn backgrounds because my background was really in character animation. I started in feature films. So I didn't have to draw the backgrounds or the props or anything. And then, but on The Simpsons, you have to kind of rough in all of that information as a character layout artist. Well, you're the current supervising storyboard director. You've had a few other jobs on The Simpsons too, but does this mean that you're set to take over from Silverman? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think David's going anywhere. Okay. But, um, yeah, like... Uh, David's the consulting producer on the show now, and Mike Anderson's actually the supervising director. Okay. Yep. So I do sort of fill in for him when either he's sick or uh, is out of town. They ask me to kind of, you know, just go to this meeting just so you're sort of representing the, the supervisory kind of level of staff. Yeah. Um, you know that sort of thing, but I, I'm I'm happy in 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 my role. Um, Mike Anderson's got a, a, a very much bigger role on the show. He, he's he's overseeing everything in terms of like quality control, not only on the show but on any sort of ancillary projects that come up, like commercials or the um, like that tapped out mobile yeah it's phone great. game. <laughs> like that's all got to go past his eye okay. to sort of do a quality control pass whereas me I'm just I'm just focusing on the storyboards each every two weeks we, we put out a new storyboard um, for a, an episode and so it's my job to kind of oversee the quality of the storyboards make sure they're um, conveying the jokes correctly yep. and also 
you know, with as much humour as possible, obviously, and to make sure that boards go out on time as well. So What you've just done there, Matt, and I, I, I kind of enjoyed, is uh, the equivalent of whenever an AFL footballer gets asked about whether or not their coach is going to be changing at the end of next year. It's um, just that, well, we're just going to look one game at a time. It's just up to me to go out there and get the ball. I'm just focusing on the little details. We've got My support is 100% behind the team. Exactly. I've got to be diplomatic. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't take the job if it was offered to me. Oh, but of course. I'm, I'm, I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm not going going after anyone's job. <laughs> well, just, what's a regular day for Matt Schofield in the office now? Well, my regular day is, it's sort of different things happen on different days. Usually on every two weeks, uh, we start, the storyboards go out, as I said, in two-week sort of cycles. So at the beginning of that two-week cycle, we have a rough storyboard meeting where we have three board artists on each show and we, they come into the meeting. We've divided up the script roughly in thirds, which these days means about 15 to 16 pages each. Yep. So the board artists have had two weeks before that to rough out their section and then they actually, we use a, a software called Storyboard Pro, mm-hmm. which enables you to actually sync up your storyboard to the soundtrack and actually make a quick time movie out of it. Nice. And so that's how the board artists present their boards at, at the meeting. They, we just play the quick time. So we, we actually are essentially watching the show, but in a very, very rough yeah. It's a great way to be able to review the show and to also see if the jokes are working. Yep. What we then do after we watch the quick time is we basically dig in and dissect the board and pick apart what's not working and what could be working better. Um, we have all three board artists in the room. We have the director of the episode and then it's me... Mike Anderson, the supervising director, and David Silverman. And we're all basically throwing in ideas. It's, it's like a think tank kind of thing. So we'll, we'll watch it through and then we'll sort of pause it at a spot and then say, okay, I didn't think this quite worked. It says in the script this, this, and this, and we're not really seeing that clearly. So what if we did a shot like this and, Post-it notes are our biggest asset in those meetings because everybody's got a little post-it notepad and everybody starts drawing out little sketches, um, ideas for different ways we could do shots, basically. And, And so then as a group, we kind of throw in ideas and then the consensus, usually the director will be the one who will say, you know, well, I like this one. So if everybody's cool with that, let's go with that. And so you kind of are transforming the board in taking it to the next level to make it all play better, funnier, more clearly. You know, clarity is one thing that we're always trying to strive after to make the jokes read as clearly as possible, whether that's through the action itself or whether it's just through like the way that a shot is composed, the elements in it so that everything is able to be clearly seen and stuff. So after that meeting, then the board artists go ahead and start implementing all those notes. 
And then as they do that, the, the board is then broken up into sequences so they can work on a little bit of their whole section at a time. And then they send those sequences to me and then I look at the new sequence, you know, the changed version, and I compare it to the notes because I take notes through that stuff, through, through that rough storyboard meeting. Um, everything that is said, every change I'm writing down, you know, lose this shot, have this action play in the previous shot, you know, stuff like that. I compare the notes and then if anything needs like more poses or a more clear pose, then I'm working with a cleanup artist. I make notes on it. I send the notes to the cleanup artist. The cleanup artist follows those notes, makes the changes, sends it back to me, and then I send that finished sequence. Once it's sort of met my approval, I send that to our editor, and it's edited into a new quick time. And that quick time, when all the sequences are then done, so we have two weeks for that phase, basically. And at the end of two weeks, we've done all the sequences. They've all been edited into a presentation. We have another screening meeting internally at Film Roman, um, the animation studio. Yeah, yeah. And this is before the writers or Al Jean or any of the producers actually see the board. They've sent us the script. We've worked on the storyboard based on the script that they sent. And then now we're about to send them the result of our work. So we are just doing a final kind of quality control viewing. We'll make a few quick notes of like, uh, this could be a bit different, change this, change that. These At this point, they're really small fixes. And then, so we make those small fixes very quickly. And then the next day is the Friday at the end of the two weeks. And that's when we send the board over to Fox and Gracie Films. And then the whole process starts again the next on the following Monday with yeah. the next show. It just sounds like it's just, non, just non-stop by the sounds of it. Yeah, it's pretty hectic. It's, it was pretty stressful. I started in this job last season, and before that I was I was just directing. And when you're directing, you get, you know, three months on one episode. You're, you're shepherding that through from storyboard all the way through the animation process to the point where the rough animation scenes are shipped to Korea to be in-betweened and, and coloured. So you've got a lot longer to finesse the scenes when you're the director of the episode, whereas now that I'm just dealing with the storyboards, I've got two weeks and I've got to get on to the next show. So it's really just got to be the best we can do in the time that we have. Um, so I've always got to be very conscious of of the deadlines because I've got another one coming up in two weeks' time. So... I can't have one be late because that's just going to cause a domino effect down the line and yep. cause them all to be late. So it'll just get into... Having one go out late is just going to be a recipe for eventual <laughs> kind of chaos. Yeah. So, so sick days don't um, really exist so for you. So far, since I've been in the job, we haven't delivered any boards late. They've, every every board's gone out on time, so it's working pretty well so far. Nice. Hey, Matt, I was just thinking... Being a, an animator, a storyboarder, you would look at the show through very different eyes to what a lot of uh, people normally would. What would be, off the top of your head, uh, your favourite piece of animation that you've watched in The Simpsons? It doesn't have to be something that you were involved in directly, but yeah, something mm-hmm. either technically or emotionally, something that animators were able to convey. Well, I think um, 
The thing that comes to mind immediately, I mean, obviously there's tons of stuff to reference, but the one thing when you first asked that question that came to mind immediately was something that I saw actually when I was back in Aus- This was before I'd even started working on the show in art college, I think. And it was from the episode where Homer goes to clown college. Yeah. yeah. And he's riding this really tiny bicycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember seeing that piece of footage and I just thought it was so well done. And I don't know who animated it, but that was one thing where it sort of struck me, oh, wow, the, the animation on this show is actually really great. Because in animation, a lot of TV animation has, I mean, up to that point, had a reputation for being very kind of cheap and awful, kind of, like cheaply done. The Saturday morning kind of cartoon cliche sort of look where it's very rudimentary sort of stuff. And so at that time, back in the early 90s, I think, you know, there was still that sort of, uh, mindset sort of existed, especially in people in in people who were involved in the animation or who paid attention to animation. And so for me, it was just that was quite eye opening. Was that one scene, and then and then I really started to pay attention more to the animation. But yeah, I mean that's the one thing that sort of came to mind immediately. Yeah, that's fair, and uh, you're right in that. That is the payoff of the story of that show and that, you know, it would be so crucial for the animation to be right on it. My other one that's right. just, uh, that I've just thought of there was the writers throughout the years have always thrown in so many film references. And even as a, a kind of movie nerd or a film buff myself, there's so many things that I have to sort of reach either online or, or looking for, geez, just what was that shot? When you guys get a script, I imagine in the, um, in the, well, for want of a better word, screenplay, it would, you know, do they include reference this shot from Citizen Kane or do you guys need to go look that up? How does that sort of work? Yeah, I mean, they do. They, I mean, sometimes they will say, like, reference this shot or this sequence exactly. And these days, you know, with the internet, they'll actually put in a YouTube link if it's online they'll include the link in the script so we can actually be completely on the same page and know exactly what they have in mind. Other times they will sort of say, like for instance, on Treehouse of Horror 20, which I co-directed and I did the storyboard for, that was the one that had the Alfred Hitchcock um, parody act. And I did the storyboard for that act And I remember in the script, they had a chase sequence where Bart was chasing Lisa. And they wrote in the initial script that I worked off of for the board, it said, um, it listed like a couple of gags that they specifically wanted, like Bart running, he pushes Alfred Hitchcock down a hill off Mount Rushmore or something. Like stuff like that was specifically in the script. And that was a reference to North by Northwest, but then at the bottom they said, and as many other Hitchcock references as you can include in this (laughs) sequence. So for me, that was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I I get to just do Hitchcock. Yeah, an open book. And so that was kind of cool being able to put together a chase sequence where you know, you're hitting the, the beats that they want you to hit, but then you're also kind of thinking, oh, it would be cool if then after what they're asking for, 
uh, after we do that, he ran through this and we added this and stuff like that. So, Did you- um, so sometimes, most of the time, they are asking for specific, like, yes, please reference this shot. We want it to look like that. But other times, they'll just say, this should feel like a Wes Anderson movie, for instance. Like, we've yep. done gags on the show where they said, we want this whole sequence to be done in a Wes Anderson style. So Jeez, when good you luck. something like that, you kind of look at some Wes Anderson movies and you think, okay, it's very symmetrical shots. Everything is sort of a flat composition. Let's try and do these gags. They'll write gags, but then they'll say, you know, do the whole thing Wes Anderson style. So then we have to kind of reference that and, and make it work the way that they want to see. It's sort of, you're taking your best guess, but based on, the experience that we have in in reading the scripts and interpreting visually what they write, usually we can we can hit it, hit the mark pretty well. So basically, you're saying that you need to be a movie geek to work at The Simpsons. Like, have they ever sent something through and you've gone, I have no idea what that's talking about? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it depends. Like, the writing staff is is I'm sure you know there's probably around twenty writers yeah. on the show, and so everybody's got sort of different tastes. And so, you know, there'll be certain references that they'll put in one script that I'm like, I don't have any idea. Does anyone <laughs> know what this is? Because I don't, I've never heard of this. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, it certainly helps to be a movie geek, but it seems like everybody on the show is a sort of pop culture geek yep. and is into all that same sort of stuff. So, Everybody sort of knows what they're asking for. Um, and if not, there's plenty of people who you can ask on the show who's, you know, hey, you're into Godzilla movies. Uh, what are they talking about when they're asking for this? You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so there you go. Your story, it's actually it's quite remarkable. I mean, you're, you're a geek, like you said, just like us, and you wanted to... You actually wanted to draw comics for a living, and then you completed a Bachelor of Visual Arts degree at uh, Griffiths University, got a job at a studio in Sydney, then after the recommendation from your boss, you moved to the States, and the rest is history. But what, what was the moment for you when you knew animation was the direction you wanted to head in? I know you've said that you loved a particular scene in The Lion King when Mufasa was yelling yeah. at Simba. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That that was the, the moment. Like when I this And this wasn't until I was in my, like, third or fourth year of college like I was going through studying animation just because it was a chance to do a tertiary level you know degree a university degree but draw cartoons at the same time so (laughs) you know but I wanted yeah as you said I wanted to uh, always I always wanted to draw like superhero comics when Mm. I was a kid so this was just the closest university course that I could find that was anything like that and I went through college all the way up until the end and was still wanting just, you know, thinking, well, I have an animation degree, but what I really want to do is comics. But then when The Lion King came out, yeah, there was this one particular scene where Mufasa is getting mad at Simba and Simba's in the grass and he just, he drops down a bit and his ears go flat. So it was a very animal behavior but it was conveying a human emotion, right? So it's a mm. little kid getting yelled at by his dad, but they're, they're showing that by using animal behavior. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's so clever and so well-observed. And 
that just sort of started me paying attention to animation more and how animation can really connect to an audience. And the thing that I love about animation is that it comes from nothing. You're not watching actors emote on a screen. You're watching drawings. You're watching flat drawings give you the same emotional response as watching real people. And so I just think there's a certain power in doing animation really well that I just love that. That's what, that's what keeps me excited about animation. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I guess my favorite example of that is from Pixar, the very, very early shorts and the Luxo lamp. And so exactly what you said that yeah. without any human yeah. at all, not even in this case with anything that you have any emotional connection to at all, it's just a desk lamp, but they're right. able to convey so much. And uh, as you said, so much human emotion through non-human objects. Yeah, completely. I mean, they're, they're just office, it's pieces of office furniture, but it's, it's the actual way that they're animating. You know exactly what's, what emotions are being conveyed just from the way those lamps are moving. So, I mean, that's amazing. When you really stop and think about it, it's pretty miraculous, I think. Yeah. What would be one of your favorite 80s, 90s cartoons that you wish you could have animated? Something I wish I had. Well, I love Aladdin. Yep, yep. Uh, Aladdin's one of my favorite animated films. And so, yeah, I'd say if I said anything, I, I would have loved to have worked on that. I don't know. I mean, the Batman animated series. Yeah, awesome. Uh, the, the Bruce Timm one. I, that was so inspiring to me. Uh, that came out also, like, right around the time The Simpsons started on TV. And I just found just the, the whole look of that show. Yeah, the way uh, they drew was Gotham so was... groundbreaking. And I would have loved... And plus, you know, being a superhero geek, that would be, you know, I would love to have worked on something like that. I mean, I still would love to work on an action superhero type cartoon, but I love The Simpsons too, so (laughs) it's still going. So I'm just going to stay on The Simpsons as long as I can. Well, you almost have worked, in a way, on a superhero movie, and this is a good segue for me to talk about what is one of my favourite, (laughs) not only favourite animated films, but favourite films of all time in The Iron Giant, Mm. which obviously there were very clear Superman references throughout that entire movie. Uh, I right. firstly, I want to say thank you for whatever whatever part you did play. I believe you were a, you were a clean up artist on that movie. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yep, absolutely phenomenal. Um, now I everything about that movie I love, and I could just talk for half an hour about why everyone listening to this interview needs <laughs> to go and watch it. But can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit from your perspective? A was that a digital production or was that more of an old school animation? Um, a little bit of a, uh, no, what? it was it was pretty old school. We were still animating on paper. At that point, you know, drawing on paper, it was then, it was it was coloured on computer, and obviously the, the giant himself was one of the first CG kind of blending blending CG into a two D uh, film at that point. So they had a unit, you know, usually on animated feature films, you have character-based units of this is the, you know, Hogarth team, this is the Annie team, this is the Dean team, and this is the Giant team. So they had teams of people working on that, but I think that's how they started off. But I seem to recall halfway, at a certain point during the production, they sort of 
changed the the way the hand drawn stuff was done. Um, at least in the cleanup department, we weren't assigned to a particular character. It was just whatever needed to be done. Hey, you're going to do a Hogarth scene this week. Hey, now you're going to do a Dean scene this week. So the t- the cleanup crew was sort of just one big crew who just worked on whatever needed to be work on worked on that week yeah. um but they still kept the giant team the 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 computer animators were their own little team and uh one of the animators richard bainham went on to win an oscar for the visual effects in avatar i think oh, well, um, oh wow so that was that was really cool watching the oscars and seeing richie bainham go up on stage i was yeah. like hey i know that guy <laughs> what, what, how, how did this happen like, what, oh, it was amazing so i worked on a lot of dean scenes and uh a lot of hogarth stuff a little bit of kent mansley and a little bit of annie yeah. Uh, but yeah, mainly Dean and mainly Hogarth. That's the, the my contributions to the to the movie. Like the scene at the lake where Hogarth, you know, jumps in the lake and it's freezing, and he says, "Come on, you big baby," and he's yep. shivering. I did that scene. I worked on that scene. Um, did you have anything to do with the, the scene in the junkyard where Hogarth pulls the gun on the Iron Giant and he sort of snaps back into his original programming? Mm, I don't remember particularly working on that but at a certain point you're going so fast that you just kind of at least in the cleanup department you've already got the animators drawings to work from so you're trying to put them on model and the cleanup artist is doing the final line drawing that you're actually seeing on screen the animators do very rough kind of drawings that then need to be cleaned up so at that point, you've kind of, you don't necessarily need to know, like, the context of what scene is this, where does it happen in the movie, because yeah. um, that has already been sort of taken care of by the animator. They've they've put the emotion in the scene, and we're sort of just tidying things up, you know? So I worked on a lot of shots with Hogarth in that helmet, you know, when he has the, yep. puts on his helmet and he tapes the flashlight to his gun yeah. and <laughs> puts his dad's bomber jacket on and goes out. I remember working on a lot of scenes within, when he was in that costume, but I don't remember particularly working on the scene where the Iron Giant first remembered his original programming. Did you realise when you were working on the movie that it would get such a cult following after? Because it didn't do well at the box office, but that wasn't you guys' fault. It wasn't the quality of the movie. It just wasn't marketed well. Like, did, did you know you were making such a great movie at the time? Yeah, we did. We thought that, like, everybody working on that movie knew we were working on something that was pretty special. You You could just see it from even just the initial rough story reel that it was just a great story and a great movie and it was going to be really cool when it was you know fully animated and on screen so i think everybody working on it had a definite sense that yeah this is going to be special i don't think anyone had the sense that oh this is going to be you know no one had a sense that it was going to become the classic that it's now kind of seen as but I think everybody definitely felt, yeah, this is a quality film. So, but yeah, you know, uh, Warner Brothers kind of dropped the ball on the marketing. And yeah. 
you know, everyone knows the story, so... You can blame Cats Don't Dance for that, can't you? Or Quest for Camelot? Uh, yeah, which, both of which I also worked on. Yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, but yeah, it was, it was the kind of thing, and that, that was actually the reason why I chose to try and get out of feature films and get into TV, was because... I worked on Cats Don't Dance, and that was a, a great little film. You know, mm. it's a much more simple story, and yeah. it was more aimed at a kid's audience. But the quality of the animation in that movie was, I think, you know, I'm, pro- I'm a little biased because I did work on it, but the quality of the animation was, I think, quite top-notch. But then that was kind of also not supported by the studio. It was, it was released with very little advertising, close to no advertising, really, um, and that bombed, and then Quest for Camelot was kind of, eh, it was kind of a turd from the beginning. <laughs> um, I think that one, I mean, it's got great pieces of animation in it, but the story, it just never made any, even, I mean, as opposed to Iron, Iron Giant, where the people working on it at the time knew this is going to be a great film, it was the exact opposite on Quest for Camelot. The okay. people working on Quest for Camelot knew it was going to be crap. Oh, okay. Right. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, not at the higher-up, like, director levels. I don't know. I was was in clean-up on that, too. So I was working at sort of a lower, much later level of production, and by the time we're actually doing the scenes and stuff, we're like, oh, God, it's awful. (laughs) Okay, let's just get it done. Yeah. A lot of people thought that way. Well, the people that are working on it don't like it, and how's it going to succeed? The Iron Giant, was that where you met uh, Brad Bird? Well, I never actually met Brad Bird, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was there. He, came, he would come around and thank, you know, because when we were working overtime, I think to, to get that movie done, we worked like three months solid overtime hours working until you know, nine every night and then coming in both days on the weekend and working like an eight-hour day, Saturday and Sunday. And you kind of just lived at the studio. It was a great way to make a lot of money because you were getting paid overtime hours and then on the weekends you were getting paid double time and you had nowhere to spend it because you couldn't go out because you were always (laughs) at work. So it was a great way to save money. And he would come around late at night around to the cleanup artists and actually personally thank us for, you know, working late and, and coming in on the weekends and stuff. So that was really nice because I'd never actually had that experience working on the other films that I'd worked on. So he was the first director that I'd had personal kind of contact with, but it wasn't like, oh, yeah, it's me old mate Brad. Kind of, <laughs> like, I doubt he would remember me. From that experience. Oh, so. Brattles. So it's, it's 99, you joined The Simpsons. Now, they're somewhat mm-hmm. still in the glory days in terms of popularity in 99. What, what was the buzz like with the crew at that point in time, and how has that changed to now? Uh, I think um, at that time it was... I think what hasn't changed is that everybody working on the show is a fan of the show. And before I started on the show, as I said, you know, a friend of a friend was already working there. And so I would, I would love talking to him because he would kind of tell me, like, oh, I was working on a scene where Homer does this. And I'd be like, oh, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to see that on TV. So to come into it and be actually working on the show, like, 
of course it was hard work, but you would have to sort of just stop yourself every now and again and just, you know, you just think to yourself, oh my God, I'm working on The Simpsons. Yeah. Like, it's, my, it's been my favourite show since I was in Australia in, you know, watching it on Sunday nights while I was in art college, and now I'm working on it. Like, that was just, you know, such an exciting experience and, and sort of mind-blowing in a way. So it was very fun at that time. The deadlines weren't as tight and the budget wasn't as tight either. So okay. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a bit more time to kind of, you know, goof off and, and do caricatures of people and, and that sort of thing. The show now is a very well-oiled machine. And while it's still fun to work on, we're kind of more pushed for time and pushed to really stick to the budget. You know, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember, like maybe f- four or five years ago, The Simpsons, like Fox cut the budget. Oh, yeah, show, I remember, yeah. Actors all yeah. actually took pay cuts. Yeah. Every, everybody basically took pay cuts to keep working on the show. That's how much everybody loves, in, you know, everyone involved, including... I'm assuming the writers and the actors all love working on the show. So, um, and certainly every, all the animators love love working on it. So, once that budget cut happened, I think a lot more attention was then paid to, you know, come on, guys, we've got to get this show out on time. We cannot be late because that's going to cause all these budget overruns, and that could, you know, there was a sense that that could put the future of the show in jeopardy if we didn't sort of strive to get it done on time and on budget so there's a little less time now for uh, mucking around but I still enjoy working on the show and I think pretty much everybody there is still enjoying it otherwise you know there's other there's a lot of other jobs in animation that you could go do at the moment in the industry at least so I think everybody is still happy to be working where they're working so do you think the show will end on your terms or on Fox's? Um, I was thinking about that this morning, actually. I think that the show will always end on Fox's terms, I think. It's going to be a matter of, is it still profitable for Fox yep. to make this show? So I would assume that as long as they continue to make money, they would want to keep producing new episodes. The optimistic part of me says that The Simpsons are essentially Fox's corporate mascots, the way that Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are corporate mascots for Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. and Mickey Mouse, etc., are corporate mascots for Disney. So I kind of feel like Fox will always want those characters in the public eye in some form or another. I mean... Uh, This is pure conjecture on my part. This is just, if I was running Fox, this is what I would do. So this is not like inside information or anything (laughs) by any means. This is just me completely speculating on what I think goes into the decision-making process. But I don't know. But I, I would think The Simpsons will always be out there in some form. You know, at the moment, it's a TV show. We've done one movie. I think there's a chance, you know, there's a possibility that if they get a a decent idea for another movie script that they will do a movie. There's games. There's all sorts of stuff. So 
I don't think The Simpsons will ever entirely go away, but it's also going to be a matter of if the actors want to keep doing it. As I just said, I, I think the actors all still really enjoy doing it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken a pay cut to keep doing yeah, it back yeah. those few years ago, I imagine. So, obviously, I'm a fan of the show as much as anybody, and I just get, am lucky enough to actually also be working on the show. So, I hope The Simpsons keeps going, not only from a career longevity point of view, yeah. but also... I like being able to watch new episodes of yep. The Simpsons every week. Like, I can't imagine there not being new episodes to watch. I'd be really sad if it was suddenly like, if the if the tap was turned off and it was like, no, no, now you've just got the library to go back and look at rather than new stuff. I, I still enjoy the new episodes, so... On that, on the weekly episodes... It's a little hard to come across in Australia these days, I believe, with more difficult to find on TV and we don't have access to The Simpsons World and all that sort of thing. In the States, though, right. is there still a lot of promotion week to week? Is there a lot of conversation the way that there certainly was when we were growing up and the way I remember, you know, kids would watch The Simpsons and then talk about it the next day at school? Do you know if that sort of stuff still goes on? You might. You said you had a family. I'm not sure how old your kids are, if they... Um, if they can relate to that at all? Yeah, my kids are too little to... Like, I don't let my kids watch The Simpsons yet. My oldest son is 12, so he's almost at the age where I'd let him watch it. You know, and I'm not judging anybody else. I'm just saying, for me, I don't think my kids are ready for some of the... um, Well, Dando wasn't until he was a teenager. There's adult-level humour and there's adult situations in the episodes of The Simpsons, like... I think the season premiere of of the season that's currently on TV involved Homer and Marge splitting up and the episode, you know, obviously resolved and they didn't split up, but it was when I remember when we were working on that one, I was like, oh man, this this script is pretty dark. Like (laughs) they're really splitting up. Like what's going on? And then of course you read to the end of the script and it was all like a A dream dream or something (laughs) that Marge had, but and, you know, apologies if that hasn't aired in Australia yet. I just spoiled no, it. No, no, that one has. That's okay. <laughs> but, you know, so that's not something that I really am ready to expose my kids to. But uh, as to your question, um, it's a bit hard for me to know because I'm so... In it? In the Simpsons kind of... You know, I'm I'm behind the curtain now kind of thing, so... Most of my friends work on the show and I don't really have, like, that water cooler talk that you're talking about, for me, it does happen for us. Like, oh, did you see, you know, did you see Mike Polcino's episode last night? Didn't it, you know, didn't that look great? Or did you see Matt Nastuck's episode? Oh, it looked amazing. That sort of thing, you know? So we talk about it, but we talk about the episodes from more a a craft point of view, like... Did you see that shot? How, you know, I can't believe that he pulled that off. How'd they even do it? It looked so complicated. You know, that kind of, that kind of talk. You're always going to get the, uh, the naysayers saying that the show's dropped in quality and blah, blah, blah. Like you said, I don't want The Simpsons to ever end because I'm an actual fan of the show, but I always tell the people that say that to check out the Halloween of Horror from this year because that episode was amazing. Oh, yeah. That was amazing, and I actually tweeted to the writer, Carolyn, how much I liked it, Mm. and Mike Anderson did a fantastic job directing that. Like, that was one of the, 
an episode that I think comes along not so often, the way that that blended humour and also like real human family dynamics. Mm. The home invasion sequence was... Specifically thinking of is when Homer and Lisa were up in the attic and he says to her, look, I'm your dad and a lot of the times I'm going to tell you that this scary stuff isn't real, but this is real. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like not played for laughs and the line readings by Dan and Yardley were just... You know, great as usual, but also playing the sincerity of that father-daughter moment and it just all came together so well. I loved that episode and I think that's one of the... That episode is going to go down as one of the classics of the entire run, but definitely of the modern kind of era of The Simpsons. Um, And that's not to say... Like, I think there's been some very good scripts over the past few seasons i think the scripts have actually been really great like that one that i was talking to you about just before where homer and marge split up i mean that was a great script and they were trying to do something that we don't normally do on the show which is getting some real kind of emotion in there you know when i'm saying we don't normally do it i'm i'm sort of thinking of it's usually like jokes like let's let's do another joke let's see if we can make this funnier. I kind of like the episodes where there's a mix of funny jokes, but there's also these moments, because I think that harkens back to the really early seasons of the show. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like episodes like Lisa's Substitute with Mr. Bergstrom. Mitch's favourite episode. Coming as a substitute teacher. That's a fantastic episode. That's funny, but at the same time, it ends on such a... A note of pathos and and just a sweet kind of Lisa moment. Yeah. So you know, I love when they put those things in the scripts. I I really love it. So um, yeah. Well, you you started about season eleven ish. That featured quite a few uh, controversial episodes, such as um, when Maud was killed off alone again. Natural Diddley killed the alligator and run. Yeah. From someone who had enjoyed the show from afar, who was now working for the show, could you see the shift from the way the show was written by that point? Like I said, in the early days, I was just happy to be working on the show. So I wasn't really like looking at the scripts with a critical eye and saying, oh, oh, what happened to the script? (laughs) That wasn't my place to do that anyway. Yeah. Um, You know, my job is just to take the material and depict it visually as well as you possibly can and make it funny. But uh, I worked on the Behind the Laughter episode. Yeah. And... My memories of working on that one, like, I loved it. I thought it was such a clever and funny idea to approach a Simpsons episode like a VH1 Behind the Music episode and have the characters sort of breaking character and talking to the camera. And Yeah, it was great. I loved working on that episode. It was so much fun to... And I think I... Thinking back, I think I actually, like heard that the director Mark Kirkland was going to be doing this episode and he kind of had already read the script and he told me oh yeah my next episode is going to be this parody of behind the music and he told as he told me about it I was like can you please put me on your crew I would love to work on that like I actually begged him to to work on it and so yeah it was really that was a really fun one 
to work on. I like the ones that are different like that. Like my favourite Simpsons episode is 32 short films about Springfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is another one where they just break the format and they... It's just this series of... I mean, it literally is a series of little short films and yeah. little little gag vignettes, but it's actually... It's weird, but it, it's funny and... I just love it. That's it's. I love that episode. It's my yeah. favorite one. They are great. I I personally was a very big fan of Behind the Laughter as well, particularly when it first came out. The um, Homer buying MC Hammer's house, and yeah. particularly <laughs> the bit that's not Simpsons related at all. But I love the fact that they then went to the trouble of outing Huckleberry Hound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was so good. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I remember that. That was great. <laughs> you know what I love? You brought up Lisa's Substitute, which is Mitch's favourite episode, and my favourite episode yeah. is 22 short films about Springfield, so we're on the same wave path. Yeah, totally. You know, you know, well, I mean, Lisa's Substitute is probably in my top five episode. Like, that's a, certainly a classic. I, I love that one too, so... Yeah, we are definitely on the same wavelength. Yeah, well, going back to Behind the Laughter, I remember as a kid, mm -hmm. hated it, because I was too young, I didn't get it. But now when I'm older, right. I, I really enjoy it. And I find that now that we go back and review the older episodes, you can really appreciate The Simpsons in a completely new way when you're an adult. Yes, that's true. I think it definitely works on two levels. And it is, yeah, I mean... Because I've been at people's houses where that do let their kids watch The Simpsons, and you know the kids are enjoying it on one level, and then the adults are enjoying all the jokes that go over the kids' heads. So I can see how that would happen. Plus, also, there's so many pop culture references, as you were saying earlier. There's so many pop culture references and references to certain films and references to other TV shows that you're not going to get unless you've seen that film. But I remember watching the show when I was, you know, in college and you would see a gag and you kind of know that they're referencing something, but I just don't know what they're referencing. Yep. And so that kind of spurred me to actually try and figure out like well what are they what is this that they're referencing and then of course you know in in succeeding years they've they've published those episode guides and stuff which actually like list yeah uh references you might have missed this was a reference to a twilight zone <laughs> episode and this was a reference to this movie and that sort of stuff so they kind of make it a lot easier for the fans now but in those early days it was really just like if you don't get the reference too bad. If you don't get that <laughs> joke, well, there's going to be another joke that you will get coming up in 30 seconds anyway, so don't worry. Yeah, yeah. You know? we, we just sat down and reviewed uh, Principal Charming, which had two classic instances of what you're just talking about that, you know, when I was a kid would have gone way over my head. Mm. First one was uh, the Hitchcock reference to Vertigo when he's running up the clock tower and they have that mm -hmm. beautiful pullback zoom of the steps. Uh, which is, again, right. fantastically animated, particularly given that the show is only its second season by that point. And then right. at the end, the uh, Tomorrow's Another School Day with the Gone with the Wind parody of the sky and that sort of thing. That was one of those moments that I watched. And mm. because it looked so different to the rest of the episode, you're like, well, I know that's something. But I, I, as a, exactly. As a five-year-old, I, I had no <laughs> idea what. But, um, right, you know... <laughs> You know, the five-year-olds in the audience are not going to no, necessarily... No, Clark Gable doesn't play well with them. 
What, what I love most about The Simpsons is, is particularly because we're reviewing the older ones, is they make you forget that you're watching a cartoon. Well, that's a Matt Groening thing. Matt Groening always has said that he wants the show to feel like a real-life situation that just happens to be animated. So that's, that's also gone into things such as the animation style where we don't do a lot of cartoony, uh, you know, in inverted commas. Um, well, there's no, yeah, there's no stretch and squash. There's no, like, multiple images. They don't distort their faces. Like, sometimes they will go into that for a specific gag, but it's not like a Warner Brothers cartoon where, you know, the char- or a Tex Avery cartoon where the character's eyes will literally, like, pop out yeah. of their heads, except for the episode I directed where the character's <laughs> eyes pop out of their heads. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, all that sort of helps to reinforce the feeling that... They are real characters, and when I started on the show, that actually, um, having been a fan of the show and watched it for 10 years, when you start to animate the characters and you get the soundtrack to listen to, because we, you know, we have the voices recorded first, you probably knew that, and we animate to the soundtrack, and when you hear the line delivery of, you know, say, Dan doing Homer... I already knew, like, I had a really good sense already of, like, oh, I know exactly what Homer would look like when he's saying this kind of a line. Because I've watched 10 years, so in my mind, they're almost like real people that I know. I know how, you know, it's the same way that you know how your uncle would would react in a certain situation you know how Homer would react in a certain situation and you know the expression that would be on his face when he's delivering a certain emotion or or whatever, you know? So I think that's one of the great things about The Simpsons is it is a world. Like, it's its own world that we just get to get a window into every episode. Um, And it does kind of... There is a, a feel of... These are real characters, and I like the episodes that reinforce that as well. Now, you also directed the uh, the episode "The Man Who Grew Too Much," which features the the tribute to Mrs. Krabappel after the passing of Marshall Wallace. That must be one you're really proud of. I was, yeah, I was really quite touched and flattered that my episode got that tribute at the end, because she died while we were still in production on yeah. that episode. So. That little tag at the end was originally something else. I don't even remember what it originally was, okay. but she died, and then the writers wrote this little tribute to her, and the tango sequence was actually animated by my assistant director, Eli Lester, mm-hmm. who is a ballroom dancing aficionado <laughs> himself and a swing dance guy, and like he does that in his spare time, so... As soon as we got this dance sequence, I was like, Eli, here's one for you. <laughs> and uh, he did an, an amazing job. And yeah, it was, it was, it was really, I was really quite touched that we were able to send Marshall Wallace that little sort of goodbye note um, yeah. at the end. You must work with some incredible people like that have worked on the show for so long. For example, Al Jean, he's the showrunner at the moment. He's been there since the beginning. Yeah. Do, do, do you ever sit around with these guys or ever have the chance to sit around and just ask stories about the, the good old days, not the glory days of the show? Uh, I've done that with David Silverman, but yeah. with the relationship between the animators and the writers, at least at my level, is, you know, Al Jean is like the busiest guy on the show. So his time is, is at a premium and... 
when we, uh, the Film Roman studio is in Burbank and the Fox studio where the writers have the Gracie bungalow, that's down in Century City. So it's about a 45 minute drive from our studio in Burbank to their workplace. And so I go over there every couple of weeks for an animatic meeting to screen the rough black and white animatic of each episode. And we see Al at that point, but it's a very business-like kind of relationship. I've never had any time with Al outside of the work environment, so I, I can't say I've ever just shot the breeze with him or anything but I mean he's a he's a really nice guy but when we're working he's all business like he, he'll come into the meeting and and he'll just say this was great instead of this let's change this to that and you know he, we we review the episode with him and he'll just say what he likes what he doesn't like but then he's got to go like he's got another meeting he's coming from a meeting to be in our meeting and then he's got another meeting (laughs) that he's got to go to after it so uh, i can't even imagine how hectic his his work day must be but yeah i've i've sat with david silverman a few times and he's told me stories about the early days on the show which is always fascinating like especially fascinating when he brings out old artwork like oh here's here's the rough storyboard i did for the um, opening sequence of the show. And it's like, oh my God, this is like goal. It's like, you know, you feel like Indiana Jones (laughs) with the the idol. You just don't even want to touch it. It's it's like, oh my God, wow, this is amazing. I'm actually looking at the prototype for what has become like this this classic opening sequence of just television in general, you know? Yeah. I think he chucked that photo up on Facebook as well, because I think I've seen it. Yeah, he's posted images on Facebook and, and on his Twitter account, so... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I hope they're in a temperature-controlled safe and not just <laughs> sitting in a manila envelope somewhere in a top drawer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where he keeps the stuff. When it came to the, I'm sure it's safe. Yeah, it would be. You'd have to be. When it came for the Simpsons movie to happen, was it for you? Was it a feeling of excitement that finally, after all these years, there was actually going to be a movie, or was it a fear just knowing how hard it was going to be to actually make it? Um, it was a feeling of excitement at first, but then as we went into production on it, it got pretty harrowing. This was the case for everyone involved, including the writers, because. They did the show, they kept the show in production at the same time as the movie was in production, but we couldn't just split the crew in half, so we had to hire a lot of new people came onto the show at that point, and a lot of new people came onto the movie at that point. And I was not, uh, the way it worked with the movie was certain directors were selected to work on the movie and other directors were selected to stay working on the show. And at that point, I was assistant director for Bob Anderson and Bob stayed on the show. So most of my stuff was, we still worked on the regular show while the movie was going on. But then I guess as the movie got closer to the deadline that it had to be done, which happens with every animated movie, you go into this crunch phase where it's all hands on deck and, oh no, we've got X amount of footage that needs to be done. How's the crew going to do it? We need to bring more people on. And so what they started doing in the later stages of the movie was... 
they brought another couple of directors onto the movie, uh, and Bob was one of those directors. And so I did work on the movie in a very small capacity. They gave Bob a sequence to direct, but only one thing that we actually worked on ended up in the final cut of the movie. <laughs> and, and that was well, one thing that I actually worked on, and that was um, Frink peddling this... It's basically the title. As the yep, Simpsons yep, yeah. comes up, Frink pedals past in this like Leonardo da Vinci type yeah. flying machine, <laughs> and I animated that. Cool. And that was the only thing that I animated that ended up in the final cut. Well, that's fine because even if so people I'm, walked out on the movie, they're guaranteed to have seen your stuff. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was great. I still got a really nice credit on the movie, even yeah. even if a lot of my stuff was cut out. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a fun. Ex- it wasn't really that different from the show. It was just it was more high pressure because there was much more expectation on yeah. the Simpsons movie. So it had to be good, and everything had to be pretty perfect. You know, there was no room for error, and so it resulted in. A lot of stuff having to be like revised and fixed and stuff until we got it exactly right. But you know, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. It all worked out and made a ton of money for Fox, so it was a huge success. And I think you know, obviously, people must have liked it. Yeah. So, and I think I think it turned out great. I, I think it's a really nice animated film. Do you think they've learnt their lesson from this and next time if they make a movie, they'll either wait till the show's finished or they'll just take a season off and do a movie instead? Yeah, I think they have. I think because, as I said, because it was so gruelling on everybody involved, I think I've heard through the grapevine and stuff that they're actually holding off now on doing a sequel while the show is still going because the experience of making the first movie was so... Uh, so time-consuming, so 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 hard on on everybody involved, just in terms of the workload and the hours and stuff. And I think it was a, a difficult birth, let's say. So I think, yeah, they they sort of did learn lessons from it. And and I think going forward, yeah, they would either end the show and then say, but there's there's more. We're going to start working on a movie, or yeah, I I don't know about putting the show on hold. I think they want to keep, as long as there's an audience that wants the show on TV, I doubt they would, like, make a break in the show. Yeah. They wouldn't want to stop the show to make a movie. They would probably choose the option where it's like, okay, well, Fox doesn't want to do any more seasons, but they want to do a movie or whatever. So, but again, like, as I said earlier, this is not any inside information (laughs) on my part because... At my pay grade, I don't have access to those kind of decisions or that sort of info. Of course. So this is purely, it's slightly informed speculation based on what I hear around the work grapevine, but also based on the same information you guys would know from just stories on the internet and stuff. You're one of the last remaining franchises not to have had a crack at doing a a movie version of A Christmas Carol. Maybe they could uh, just drop that in for a little special next holiday season. (laughs) I thought, like, the Halloween of Horror episode, I think that would have made a fantastic movie. Yeah, definitely. You know, 
rather than doing a Halloween episode, like if they had kept the idea and said, well, this is a Halloween movie, mm. but it's not the Halloween story that we normally do. And I think that story could definitely have Easy. been yeah. expanded to a feature-length thing. I mean, there's already tons of those horror home invasion-type movies, so yeah. even if you just did it on a more family-friendly kind of Home Alone level, there's already precedent for being able to do a story of that type at feature length. But, you know, I mean, it was... That's not t- not taking anything away from the episode as it, as it came out. Um, well, I think it's one of the best episodes of the last decade by far. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. Not to shit on the other episode, like, yeah. on my colleague's work. I, I'm in a difficult position, like, <laughs> sort of like playing favourites with your kids. Yeah. So, you know... <laughs> I can't choose a favourite episode of the ones that I've worked on because they've all got their strengths and weaknesses, I think. But yeah, I would say, I would agree that that, that Halloween of Horror was a particularly strong episode. What made it so great was we'd never seen that before. We'd had the Treehouse of Horror, but this was in canon, and we'd never had that before in 26 or 27 seasons. And it it was mind-boggling that it's taken this long for that to happen. Yeah, it was a great idea from it for an episode. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, it's it's funny that they hadn't done. It, that, I mean, those are kind of the best the best ideas are the ones that you kind of slap your forehead and, and you go, "Oh my god, I can't believe they didn't think to do this before." What a fantastic idea, you know? Like, it was kind of always hanging out there. You know, the potential for that story was always there. But yeah, they, I'm, I'm glad they finally decided to take that angle on, well, what do the Simpsons actually do on Halloween in, yeah. their, in their canon, in the continuity yeah. of their daily lives? So. And my, my wife, or she watches the show, she wasn't a huge fan before she met me, but obviously she has to be now if she wants to be married to me. So, <laughs> right, I, I, no choice. <laughs> so, but she commented the other day saying how crisp the show looks nowadays, and it looked a lot more cruder back in the day. Now, I try to tell yeah. her it is computer generated, but you guys still draw it, don't you? You just draw it straight into the yes. computer. Yeah, yeah. We use these monitors called Cintiqs, or a Wacom Cintiq, which you have a stylus and you can actually draw on the screen with the stylus and it produces a line in the program that you're using. So everybody on, we switched over to computers after the movie. Yeah. And and we also switched to HD after the movie Mm -hmm. because. You had to. (laughs) Fantastic. You know, in that widescreen format and HD TVs were just starting to, you know, really, really infiltrate the mass market at that point. And so, you know, the the powers that be made the decision, yeah, we're going to reformat the show. It's now going to be widescreen format. We want the same level of detail, the same amazing color styling that we had on the movie. We want every episode to look as good as the movie. So we sort of changed the process. Uh, it all got computerized up to that point. It had all still been drawn on paper, and the paper scenes were sent via FedEx to Korea. Now everything's kind of electronically delivered. Yeah. I have heard that the Korean animators still actually work on paper. But what they do is they print out our drawings onto paper and then they work from they still work on paper. They haven't shifted over to computerization yet, 
but I'm sure if the show keeps going long enough, they will eventually shift to computerization as well, and then it'll be an even more efficient kind of process. But yeah, the computer is great because, um, especially for like making fixes and stuff, yeah. um, like we're still doing the drawings by hand, but if you have to like move an arm or you know change the size of a character all throughout a scene so if you've got 20 drawings of a character but they're all too big like if bart is too big in relation to homus let's say you can just grab all the drawings at once and shrink them all down oh, at well, once yeah. rather than when we were on paper, that would be, you know, you'd be spending 20 minutes at the at the photocopy machine, <laughs> Xeroxing all your drawings down by 80% or whatever, and then you take all those back to your desk, and then you've got to actually get, like, an X-Acto knife and cut in the new smaller parts onto the drawing beside Homer or whatever, and then stick them together with sticky tape. It was, like, the most... You know, like the most jerry-rigged kind of like nuts and bolts uh, process, but that's how we did the show. But now, you know, you've got, you can just press a button, select all, shrink them all down as one, and then you're done, and it takes seconds. So that is the real advantage of drawing on the computer, I think, um, at least for my process. Well, it's obviously you said it's, it's much easier now. But in terms of personal preference, when it comes to the quality of the final product, do you prefer pen-to-paper animation or computer animation? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that beats the feel of doing a nice pencil drawing. So, yeah, I still, like, aesthetically, I like the look of the pencil-on-paper drawings. But in terms of just efficiency and speed, you just can't beat the computer. and. I kind of reconcile myself by just thinking, well, it's not really my drawings that are on screen anyway, so it doesn't really matter how rough or polished these drawings look because the the program that we use is a vector-based program, so you can't get a lot of subtle differences in lines. You have It's almost like drawing with a marker rather than a pencil. And so you just have to kind of get used to that feel of it. But it doesn't have the subtlety of pencil drawings. But then my pencil drawings were never what was used on screen anyway. So it kind of, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, It's the Korean animators' drawings (laughs) that are the ones that you actually are seeing on screen in the show. So my drawings are just kind of, I don't know, they're probably kept by Fox or thrown away by the Korean animators or whatever, but, <laughs> you know, I don't see them again, so... When it, com- when it comes to your drawings, your Inktober pictures, mm-hmm. amazing. Oh, thanks. So good, yeah, man. Yeah, was fun doing that. I've already got two Thank or three you. tattoo designs out of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun doing that. I just wanted to, you know, I'd like, I wanted to stick with something I was familiar with which is the Simpsons you know I know how to draw the Simpsons backwards and forwards and but it was just a way to make it kind of fun for myself by mashing it up with a movie each time and it just it really just started off with that first drawing of Ned Flanders as Walter uh, White, Walter White yeah. Yeah. Heisenberg from Breaking Bad and that was really just a doodle that I was just doing when I had five minutes on my coffee break at work and then I noticed 
that it was the 1st of October. And I'd kind of done some Inktober drawings last year. Inktober, for your listeners who may not know, <laughs> is a thing where um, artists and animators, uh, every day in the month of October, they do an ink drawing and they post it on Twitter or Facebook with the hashtag Inktober. And uh, you can do, you know, there's a bunch of different websites that have suggestions for each day or, you know, you can just do whatever you, whatever you want, really. And so, yeah, I just happened to notice that it was the 1st of October on the day that I did that sketch and I was like, huh, Inktober. Yeah. <laughs> I start doing Inktober. What a coincidence. And so then, you know, the next day I did Homer as Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad. Yeah. yeah. And... But then I started to realize, oh, I'm going to run out of Breaking Bad characters, so I better do, I just better sort of general, do it a bit more general and just say, like, mashing The Simpsons up with either another movie or another TV show. And, um, yeah, it was really fun, and getting the interaction through Twitter was really cool when I asked for, you know, I said I'm open to suggestions, and people came up with some really cool um, suggestions, which, you know, but I have to sort of tell people I'm not necessarily going to do all the suggestions. It has to be something that your suggestion triggers. Like, one guy was sending me messages that were very specific. Yeah. Like, he wanted to see a particular scene or whatever, and I said, no, no, you just give me, like, the launching pad for a suggestion, kind of like an improv yeah. act, right? And I then take it, and if I can think of a funny idea or a cool picture to make out of that, then I'll do it. But if I can't, if it doesn't spur my imagination, then I'm, I just, I'm not going to use it. So, yeah, so that's, that's how that happened. But I kind of, I eventually crapped out because um, I was working on a Halloween costume at the same time. Mr. So Freeze, yeah. The nights after work in October were getting quite long. <laughs> And I just had to get this Halloween costume done. So at a certain point, I was like, sorry, Inktober, I've got, I've got other I'm things out. I have to do. What I liked about that so, Mr. Yeah. Freeze costume, we uh, saw the photo of that, was that you've gone for the oh, yeah. the Batman, uh, Adam West version Batman, Mr. Freeze, is seemed to be the he- yeah. most uh, heavy influence. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to do the Arnold Schwarzenegger one because <laughs> I didn't think that really looked like Mr. Freeze anyway. And I just wanted to do something that was a bit more comic book looking. Yeah. And the thing with Mr. Freeze is there's no one definitive look for, you know, unlike Batman himself or, say, the Joker, who's always in, like, a purple, green, and orange suit with white face, green hair. Mr. Freeze is... There's been so many different kind of interpretations of him that was sort of the easy part because it meant that that kind of freed me up to just do my own design. But it was also difficult because there was nothing I could base it on. So I was really, it was trial and error because I'd never built anything out of foam before the whole costume was made out of plastic and foam. Mm. And I'd never worked with foam before. So I was looking up like YouTube tutorials on <laughs> how to make foam costumes and stuff. And But it was all trial and error, and at times it was quite frustrating because I'd do one thing and it wouldn't work, and so then I'd have to glue kind of more foam or cut it down and re-glue it, and it's, well, it, it 
was a bit of a pain, but it turned out pretty nice. So for next year's Inktober, or if you if you want to finish the project off, Mister Burns as Mister Freeze, which would certainly be a good look, just in that big bowl. Oh, that's a great bowl idea. helmet. Yeah, yeah, I should do that. I was actually kind of thinking of because I'm I'm still like halfway through a drawing of the Simpsons characters. As do you guys? You might you guys might be too young, but they probably have rerun. The show Monkey on Australian TV. Monkey, no, I... you know Monkey, Monkey Magic. I'm like, I'm Monkey, Monkey Magic, Magic. Yeah, yeah, Monkey Magic. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's the Japanese show about the Monkey King legend. Yep. Uh, one of my friends on Facebook requested mash up the Simpsons with that. And so I was halfway through a drawing which did that, but then I had to stop. So I'm sort of thinking, oh, I could get back into it and just do like... Because I think I stopped at like day nineteen or something, or something like that. Yeah, October. So I just do the remaining eleven or twelve days and say, well, it's Inktober somewhere in the universe <laughs> right now. So, but you know, I don't know. I've got, I've got to find time to do that. Well, you already combined two of my favourite things: The Simpsons and ET. ET is my favourite movie ever made. <laughs> Yeah, that was a fun one. I liked doing the the perspective on that one, looking down at the street. That was pretty fun. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I had the idea of Mr. Burns wrapped up in the blanket. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was really the beginning of that idea. Of Bart, obviously, would be Elliot. And at first, I thought maybe Mole Man as ET, but then I thought, oh no, Mr. Burns has this big bulbous head. That yeah, would yeah. kind of look funny wrapped also, up you'd... in the blanket in his basket of his bike. You're also taking the most evil character on the show and turning him into, the, you know, juxtaposing that with the lovable character of E.T. I thought that was very, <laughs> that was an inspired choice. Yeah, well, Mr. Burns is kind of fun to draw when he's, you know, when you draw him like wide-eyed and draw him kind of cute. I yeah. think that's that's sort of fun to draw him like that because he is so evil all the time. So. Yeah. It's something a bit different and, and out of the ordinary. I was actually going to ask that. Who are the characters that you find that you, you draw most just in your spare time, just for fun? Like, who do you enjoy drawing? I really like drawing Mo. Yep. Um, Mo's always been one of my favourite characters just because he's so, like, he's such a reprehensible character. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always, like, Mr. Sad Sack, kind of always, like, putting a damper on things. And nothing ever goes right. Even even the episodes where it's, you know, like, oh, Mo gets a girlfriend or whatever, it always turns bad at he the end. He ruins it, yeah. So he's one of my favourite characters just in the show in general, but also um, I just like drawing him. I can draw him very quickly, and uh, he can you can do really fun um, expressions on him because he's got those big sort of caveman brows, yeah, yeah. Um, which are really fun to uh, muck around with. So, yeah, I'd say Mo is one of my favourite characters, and I kind of like the sea captain. I mean, he's not in the show a lot, but he's really fun to draw. And also Wiggum. I like, I like characters with hats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing stuff. I like doing acting with the hat, which not a lot of animators on the show do, but I like to do stuff where Wiggum will like grab his hat and push it up yep. so he pushes it back on his head or like if he's getting disheveled or whatever you can draw the hat <laughs> to the side of his head i kind of like characters like which have props that you can sort of mess around with you know and and do interesting things that so it so it it gives it the realism of 
this isn't like an action figure with a piece of molded plastic that is actually attached to his head with glue. This is a real person who can take off this hat, you know, you know, stuff like that. So just little things like tilting the hat back gives the audience that kind of subconscious sense that it's real. Yeah, we're getting back to it. It's just those little attention to details that we often point out now when we're doing the reviews. The attention to detail that the Simpsons animators went through just makes the show... That's why mm. it's the greatest cartoon of all time. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll pass that compliment on. <laughs> Please do. Now, before we go, because I'm spent, I'm sure you're spent too, Matt. Mitch, do you have any final questions about The Iron Giant? Because I know it's your favourite movie ever, Matt. <laughs> uh, if there's any like limited edition Criterion uh, release or something, or if there's any way of getting a, a signed copy sent down to Australia, I'll pay whatever's involved. No, I, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, it's not a question, it's a compliment. But what I love, uh, what, some of the things that I really love about The Iron Giant is the different types of animation. Now, you mentioned that there was the blend of CG versus hand-painted. I love the inserts of the duck and cover parody videos throughout oh, yeah. that movie as well. Yeah, yeah. Because they stick so close to what the actual duck and cover videos were, which is what I like the most as well. It's almost, right. it's a shot for shot recreation yeah, well, I mean, that's, done for comedy. It's, it's all the genius of Brad Bird. Like, he, he is a director who knows what he wants. Like, he's not, He's like down to the frame. Like we would sit with him in the dailies to review the dailies and he would, you know, we'd be playing these little clips, black and white tests of the rough animation, right? Yeah. And we'd play it through and he'd say, stop. Okay, go back three frames. Wow. This drawing doesn't work. You've got to move this part, you know, move his hand down here and then that'll work. Like he, and he could just pick that up. Like, yeah. I would watch it through and I'd be like, how did he even see that? But he well, that's is why he's watching Brad Bird. every frame of film. He knows exactly what he wanted from every frame of film. I mean, he wrote the originals. The treatment for the movie was, was him. He came up with the story based on the Ted Hughes book and, you know, it went through a scriptwriter, but that story is him and so he knew the style that he wanted the characters he knew the style of animation that he wanted again you'll notice that in iron giant it's not your typical animated film there's no songs it's not a disney animated film you know there's, no it's, it's there's just no a movie songs. there's not a lot of cartoony animation it's all real like that um the coffee scene where Ho Hogarth is hyped up on coffee because he's had a double espresso <laughs> yep. when he's in Dean's office. Yeah. Well, Brad Bird actually animated that scene. Okay. And you'll notice there's not a lot of, like, he's moving really fast, but there's not a lot of, like, cartoon blur sort of multiple image drawings like you would maybe normally see in a more, quote, cartoony piece of animation. No, in fact, it's, all... it's it's really close to... I was watching recently uh, 30 Rock. There's an episode where Kenneth is hopped up on coffee, and it's... <laughs> Yeah. To your point, yeah, he the Hogarth in that scene acts the exact same way that a human actor acts when they're in that moment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it must be a really cool experience to write this, come up with this scene in your head, write the scene, and then be able to direct the actor who's acting out the scene, and then be able to animate the scene. Yeah. So you can be sure that that scene is pure 
Brad Bird, like, that was exactly what he wanted. And, you know, I mean, going back to the duck and cover thing, that helped to, you know, that that was part of the whole feel of that movie was it's in the 50s, it's during the, the Red Scare kind of era where they, you know, people were paranoid that... The Russians were with, you know, had infiltrated yeah. the society. They they were scared that it was going to be nuclear Armageddon at any moment. So um, adding those little details was very kind of great world building yeah. um, stuff, as they say. Was that all, Mitch? That's all. Thank you very much. Uh, you should have seen the look on Mitch's face. He had a big smile the whole time then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no worries. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys, if you want to keep up to date with what Matt's doing in his day-to-day life, you can follow me on Twitter, at Mr. Underscore Schofield. If you want to ask me a question, just contact me on Twitter as well. Thanks, Matt. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, good luck with the rest of Season 27. Oh, thanks, guys. No, this was really fun. So, uh, continued success with the podcast. I love it. Thanks, Matt. Great thanks, to Matt. Great to you guys. Like we said, how good was that interview? A We're ripping bloke. And the thing was, right, we'll break the fourth wall. There was issues. It was, yeah. <laughs> Technical okay. issues. So here's everything that was... F- Here are all the things that went wrong this morning. Okay, so what happened was, right, I had all my questions, two pages of questions all printed out, ready to go. I had the Skype, because we're going to interview him over Skype. Uh, the interview was at 9am, I wake up at 8.30, ready to go, and my internet's not working. My yeah. router's not working. It's never happened since I've moved into this house two years ago. Internet's not working. We're on the NBN, the National Broadband Network, <laughs> the latest and greatest of technology in Australia, and it fucked itself. Yes. And then it's about 22 or 25 to 9. Mitch isn't here. I'm like, you won't be far away. I'd said I was going to be here at 8.30. Yes. I'm like, you won't be far away. Get a text. <laughs> Mitch saying, hey, man, just wake up. I'll be on my way soon or something. I was like... <laughs> I said, while well, I was on my way at the moment. I, <laughs> I live 25 minutes from Dando's house. I woke up 26 minutes before the interview was scheduled to start. I am currently wearing jeans, the underwear that I slept in, a t-shirt, and no shoes because I had no time to find any. <laughs> I also left all of my questions and my headphones sitting on a desk at home. Yeah. But hey, we're here and it all worked out. And we were just lucky that Matt was such a genuinely nice guy that he didn't care. He waited an extra half an hour. We got the interview done. It was great. It was good times. Halfway through the interview, because it went for so long, batteries went dead on batteries the recorder. Batteries died. Yep. <laughs> so we had to stop the interview. He went and got a glass of water. Mitch just talked to him about what were you talking about? Brisbane and just hanging uh, out? Just in general. Yeah. How we met. Brisbane, how we met, that sort of stuff. But what I love was I heard him say that he listens to the podcast. He does. He listens to the podcast while working on the show. He, he was... Um, saying to me that he, what he enjoys is actually listening to podcasts rather than music while he's at work. Who doesn't? One of those is ours. Yeah. So, <laughs> yet again, four-finger discount at Simpsons HQ. I just hope that he, obviously he's going to be listening to this because he listened to our show. Yeah. Now, Matt, your job is to get everyone that you work with in the, in your room right now. Or, do you reckon he has his own office? No. I, I, a- anyone I, that I works. I picture it being on a floor. All, yeah, all of your co-workers, they must now subscribe to four-finger discount and tell us how much they love the show. And rate and review us in the yeah. iTunes store, please. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. Also, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Four Discount. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Matt Schofield. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you guys next time. See you guys. Shh.